Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 278 of the podcast. It's April 12th, 2017. In the lean community, and I guess in businesses or hospitals more generally, people often talk about firefighting in an informal, colloquial way. Today, my guest um, is an actual professional firefighter, Tom Boothelay. He serves as a fire captain and paramedic for the Hilton Head Island Fire Rescue, where he is the cardiac care program manager. So in this episode, we discuss the role of lean and process improvement in fire departments and EMS, why blame is, as Tom says, completely ineffective as a strategy, why unsafe supervision is a problem and what that means, and why it's necessary to build in quality instead of just inspecting for it after the fact. So I hope you enjoy the discussion. If you'd like to find uh, Tom on social media, other links to projects and articles of his, you can go to leanblog.org slash 278. Tom, hi. Thank you for being a guest and joining us here on the podcast. My pleasure to be here. Can you introduce yourself, um, you know, for the listeners, um, you know, tell us first about your professional background and in your in your career. Um, sure. So my name's Tom Boothelay. I'm a captain paramedic with Hilton Head Island Fire Rescue in South Carolina. I've been a paramedic and a firefighter for about 20 years. Prior to that, I worked inside the hospital in the admitting department and during paramedic school as a cardiac monitoring technician. Uh, my dad's a retired hospital CEO, and my wife is a dual boarded advanced practice nurse. So I've been exposed to healthcare for most of my life. And there's there's strong overlap between the responsibilities of, uh, of firefighters and in EMS these days. Is that fair to say? I would say in a large portion of the United States, uh, emergency medical services are run by the fire department. Um, not everyone thinks that's a good idea, um, but it works pretty well on Hilton Head Island. So um, on Hilton Head, um, we're a dual service organization. So we do fire suppression and, and everything under that umbrella, which would be special operations, hazardous materials, urban search and rescue, that sort of thing. And then we also do um, we also do emergency medical services, including transport patients to the hospital. So there are fire departments that just provide what's called first response. And then, you know, they have a, either a private ambulance company or they have, um, you know, a municipal or county based EMS system that comes and transports the patient. Um, but we do it all. Mm-hmm. What, what is um, I'm, I'm curious if you can elaborate a little bit the, the, the controversy or the, the differing opinion where, where some people think that shouldn't be combined? Well, sure. I mean, there there are professional paramedics that work for uh, municipal or county-based EMS systems that think that firemen are jacks of all trades and masters of none. Mm. And uh, yeah, I guess they they would say they're they're not going off to get firefighter training. Or I mean, I guess I mean you can get trained and certified in uh, in, in in both and. And, and be, if not a master, at least competent to be able to do the job, I trust. Right? Well, yeah. well, true. I mean, I, I, I frequently yeah. say, um, I'll say of the fire service what Leo Strauss said of democracy, and that is because I am a friend of fire-based EMS. I cannot afford to be a flatterer 
of Firebase DMS. It is difficult to do both things well. It is mm -hmm. something that you have to be conscious of. Mm -hmm. And so, what, what are your duties, um, you know, of being a fire captain? What what does that what does that entail? If you can kind of you know describe your role. Well, technically, we're responsible for on-scene management of any emergency that is not related to law enforcement. And so that includes both fire and medical, um, as well as the upkeep of our assigned fire station and all of the apparatus and equipment. Um, but in reality, what I've come to understand is what we really do is manage people. And are the boundaries of that management would include everybody who's working there at a particular station or multiple stations? Well, it really kind of depends. I'm in a unique situation at fire station number six because we actually have three captains assigned to mm. station six because each shift has its own captain because we run a special operations company out of that station. But for the most part, um, someone with the rank of captain is the highest ranking officer assigned to that fire station. And on the other two ships, there would be a lieutenant. And so then the captain sort of coordinates the responsibilities of the uh, care and up keep of, of the station and all the assigned equipment. And most captains are also assigned a special uh, program or additional area of responsibility. Uh, for example, one captain might be in charge of the hazmat team. Um, my, my special project is I'm the cardiac care program manager for the department. Um, so there's usually at that level, um, you're, you're assigned some other special responsibility at the system level. Mm -hmm. Okay. And we're going to come back and um, talk later in the podcast about um, cardiac care and some mm -hmm. systems improvement opportunities. But um, if, if, if you can maybe talk first more generally, you know, we, we run, ran across each other on Twitter with a shared interest in lean and process improvement. I've, I've seen you write about this. Um, how did you get exposed to these methodologies? What was the, the origins of that? You know, it's it's hard to remember when I first heard about it. Um, my brother Mike is an industrial engineer, so it's possible that I first heard about Deming and the Toyota production system from him. Um, he might have been mentioning those things long before it held any particular significance to me. Um, but I think if you're interested in quality at all and taking it seriously and researching the topic, um, you'll eventually start to understand the central role of culture in an organization. And, um, you know, you, you read Deming and you start to wonder why Deming was successful in Japan and not the United States. And you wonder why certain industries like aviation um, have adopted a safety culture and why it's been slow to come to healthcare. And so I think just um, as you go through that process, you you start to look at the world and wonder um, why certain industries seem to be thriving and other ones aren't. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm an industrial engineer. Um, I, I, I think it's great that you've been exposed not just to lean and the Toyota production system, but as you mentioned, um, you know, I think some of the really important roots there, the work of W. Edwards Deming uh, and, and what he did in Japan and, and later on, thankfully, at least a little bit being listened to in the, uh, in the United States and, yeah. and getting some exposure. So, um, you know, for, for listeners who maybe have, you know, a, a deep lean perspective without that background in, in Deming, how would you summarize, um, you know, some of uh, the, the principles and quality improvement ideas from mm -hmm. Dr. Deming? And I'd be also curious how that's related to your work as a, a fire captain and EMS. 
Well, I, th- I think it's fair to say I didn't necessarily relate to all 14 points. Mm-hmm. I mean, certain things related to supply chains and things of that nature didn't uh, seem particularly uh, helpful to me uh, right in the beginning. But I would definitely say the emphasis on building quality into the product um, and being less reliant on inspection after the fact um, or in what we would call in the emergency uh, services, a, a, you know, either a post-event review or critique um, it's too late to help that patient, right? Mm-hmm. It, that calls over. And so, you know, we can sort of nitpick what uh, the opportunities for improvement were. Um, but at some, on some level, you think, well, maybe our time would have better, been better spent perfecting our craft and uh, training to the point where our unseen performance was uh, much, much better. If you, we have a very finite amount of time that we can get the guys together for uh, not actually running calls, but either to do training or to do post-event review, which we consider training. And so I think just the emphasis um, of building quality into the product is, is, I think, is what probably spoke to me the most mm-hmm. um, about Deming. And, of course, he's a very entertaining, cantankerous old man. So <laughs> even, even watching videos uh, of him. And, you know, the other part is... Um, uh, you know, I, I can't get enough of it when he when he, he loves to remind us that uh, 94% of problems in an organization are system problems um, and systems are the purview of management. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it, it clearly um, it is human nature to um, assign blame and um, it's completely ineffective. And so, um, you know, I certainly owe that as well to uh, to Dr. Deming. Yeah. And and. It's great that Dr. Deming lives on, you know, through YouTube, and I would encourage people, uh, you know, go to the W. Edwards Deming Institute at Deming.org. You know, he passed away, 1993, but thankfully there were there was a lot of video and a lot of that's available on YouTube and in other places. But yeah, I'm really curious. You know, when you speak to culture, um, you know, moving away from blame, that that's something that you know, hospital medicine um, has has struggled with, whether it's through the context of lean or the patient safety movement, which, you know, I think, you know, the modern healthcare quality movement of Don Berwick and Paul Batalden and others, um, you know, has very direct roots um, with with Dr. Deming. So I'm kind of curious if, if you have some reflections or stories around, um, you know, trying to change the culture. I, I can imagine, you um, in, in one culture, doing a, a, a post-critique or a post-event review uh, could degrade into finger-pointing and blame instead of, you know, identifying system problems in, in, in a way that helps uh, improve the system and prevent, you know, future occurrence or similar occurrence. Can, can you talk about maybe some of the work that you've been able to do or examples you know of of, uh, mm-hmm. of shifting that culture, why that's important? Uh, well, your point is very well taken. Conducting a post-event review um, is a skill, and it requires a lot of diplomacy. And um, I, I, I would not encourage someone who hasn't thought long and hard about it from kind of uh, rushing headlong into it. And uh, and because post-event critiques can do more harm than good if they devolve into uh finger pointing. And so um, one thing that you could consider doing, um, well, it's also, it depends, right? I mean, you might be doing a post-event critique of a call that went very well. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's easy. <laughs> that, that's not a problem. Yeah. Um, but now if, if you're, you know, doing a post-event review where a patient died or a fire got out of control or a fireman was injured or something like that, um, you know, emotions can be pretty raw. And so 
I think sometimes it's helpful to use a standardized tool. For example, um, in military aviation, they have the HVACs tool, which is the human factors analysis and classification system that helps us look at sentinel events um, through the eyes of the system. And so, yes, you look at unsafe acts, you do, but you also look at the preconditions to unsafe acts and you look at unsafe supervision and you look at organizational influences. So what I like to say is, you know, there, there may be one finger pointed at you, but there's three more fingers pointed back at me. And so I think it's really important to realize that there are nascent causes of failure that lie dormant for a long time. And it's easy to fixate on the last domino that fell and say, well, you know, you're the person that did this. But upon further reflection, there's almost always underlying system factors that allow the opportunity for the error to occur. Almost always. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I think as long as it's understood in that context, you can help tease out those opportunities. Sure. And can you elaborate, um, you know, that, that phrase you used, uh, unsafe supervision, um, kind of um, piqued my interest there. Is, is, is that, uh, you know, situations where supervisors are being inattentive to unsafe conditions or not encouraging, reinforcing the right practices? What, what do you mean by unsafe supervision? Uh, well, it could be. I mean, it could be something, I mean, for example, if, if a fire truck backs up and, um, you know, hits a cement post and puts a, a dent in the back of the engine um, and no backup man was used and we have a policy that we're supposed to have a backup man and the officer was sitting in the front of the truck and didn't say, stop, 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 we need to have a backup man. Well, that's unsafe supervision. We, you know, we, we had a policy. The policy wasn't followed. The officer knew we weren't following the policy. So there's multiple problems there. And one of one of those problems um, was unsafe supervision. Heck, it might be that there was no supervision. Uh, we've had situations where a single ambulance with an inexperienced paramedic paired together with an inexperienced EMT went on a call and things didn't go as well as they might have. Again, that's a complicated situation. It's like, okay, well, you blame a paramedic for misdiagnosing the patient when, you know, maybe they shouldn't have been paired up with another inexperienced person. Um, maybe we should have dispatched more help to the scene, including a supervisor, and maybe a supervisor could have prevented. So these things are complicated. And um, if you have a culture of blame, um, no one is going to report problems to you. Um, right. They're going to hide them, and then you're never going to improve. So um, I think they need to know that you're there to help support them because you can yeah. achieve you can get compliance with a whip, but you can't get quality. I'd agree. I'd agree. Um, how, I mean, as much as you can generalize, how common are um, in principles of, of lean or Deming or quality improvement uh, in emergency services and, and fire departments around the country? Is there, is there a little bit, are there pockets of it? Is, uh, how, how would you characterize the field in general? I would say definitely there are pockets. And so some of the people that have implemented some of the concepts um, that you might find in the Toyota production system, for example, um, might be there coincidentally um, through different programs that, that, that um, in other words, they might call it just culture and it might contain elements of lean, but they may not be thinking exactly in those terms. Um, so I would say still nowhere near where we should be, but I, I think what you said is is interesting and probably correct. There are pockets. Mm -hmm. 
there there are pockets. Um, hopefully, it's an up and coming thing. Um, just culture, uh, things like lean, um, different techniques from aviation like crew resource management and checklists. I think all of them together are in sort of a burgeoning patient safety movement that is coming late to EMS. Mm-hmm. Now, in in your role, you know, EMS. Uh obviously has touch points um, with the hospital. You're, you're delivering patients, you're, you're working with the emergency department or, or trauma. Are, are there times where you've been able to um, sort of come be involved in, if you will, you know, extended value stream, look at, at patient flow, or any of the hospitals in your area, embracing lean and involving EMS in some way? Um, to various degrees. I mean, we, when we first started to really improve heart attack care and uh, sudden cardiac arrest, we did form a multidisciplinary committee to discuss it. And uh, I think that was the first time ever on Hilton Head Island that uh, EMS sat down with nursing, emergency medicine, and cardiology to uh, discuss how are we going to navigate this patient um, all the way from collapsing on the living room floor to discharge neurologically intact. There's a lot of steps in between. And um, and we know that patients are very vulnerable during handoff. And so, um, you know, that those are possible areas where patients become less safe. So it does behoove us to talk about how those transitions happen and things we can do to improve it. And, uh, you know, on occasion, uh, we've even done simulations using mannequins where we've moved a patient from unit to unit. Now, you know, a cynic would say, well, maybe they just did that because they were going after chest pain accreditation or some other thing. And that may be partially true, but I think it it benefits us when we model the expected behaviors. And I will tell you that when you simulate things, you do find problems that you didn't think about. So, right. um, so yeah, I think we've, we've tried that. I think it could be better. There's always opportunities for improvement, certainly. Um, but we've, we've tried to do that. Yeah, we've, we're we're cognizant of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and we'll we'll come back again and talk more about um, uh, cardiac care and some of those touch points. But I, I was going to mention, you know, the only other time uh, have addressed anything involving um, first responders in lean. I, I did some. I did. It was a two part episode um, back in the late two thousand eight, uh, episode fifty one, and then part two. Uh, was episode 60, uh, Lieutenant Randy Russell from the Jacksonville, Florida Sheriff's Department, where they had been mm. applying um, lean in, in law enforcement. And uh, we had a, a good good conversation about that. So I'd uh, encourage listeners maybe to go check out those episodes if, if you're interested. And, and Tom, I'll, I'll send you those links. But you know, one thing I remember Lieutenant Russell talking about was um, – not just implementing lean tools, but connecting lean practices to uh, purpose and, and safety. And you know, he told a story about the idea of you know what you might call five uh, S or you know standardizing um, vehicles in the sheriff's department. He said the starting point, you know, which reminds me of hospitals and phlebotomy carts or other. Um, you know, similar uh, vehicles that people use. You know, he, he was encouraging the standardization of those vehicles and he got a lot of pushback. People saying, well, th- this is my car. I want to, I like it the way it is. I'm the only, you know, and, and he got that pushback. But when he painted scenarios, it seemed, you know, really realistic scenarios of, let's say there was a, a scenario where there were multiple um, officers and cars responding and 
Um, there was a scenario where you know you needed to get a shotgun out of somebody's vehicle. Do you want to spend time searching someone else's vehicle, or do you want to know exactly where it is because the cars are standardized? And you know, he said that helped gain acceptance when uh, you know it was a realistic scenario that could have been life or death for them or or the public. Um, do, do you have similar conversations in the context of, of fire and EMS? You've got vehicles and equipment and the station. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on some of that? Um, well, I agree with them 100%. When I first started with Hilton Head Fire Rescue back in 1997, um, it seemed like every fire station had a completely different uh, make of fire engine. So you might have an E1 at station two and a Ferrara at station one and a Pierce at station six. And um, they had different hose loads and they the equipment was stowed in different compartments. And, you know, sometimes we have newer firefighters who are some of the least experienced guys um, that are expected to know where all this equipment is and um, what line needs to be stretched with what type of nozzle and things like that. And I'm sure it was very confusing for them. So now uh, we have a completely standardized fleet. There's only slight slight variation because uh, two of our uh, trucks are what, what are called quints. So they have big ladders on top. And when you have big ladders on top, you need big outriggers that takes up some side compartments. So, of course, there's some variability with the two quints. But for the most part, our entire ambulance fleet and our entire engine fleet is highly, highly standardized. And it turns out that is, we don't even think about it anymore, to be honest with you. But, uh, you know, looking back, yeah, by all means, um, the last thing you need to be doing while someone's dying is, uh, you know, look for the appropriate oxygen mask. So yeah. uh, it's good good to know where stuff is. Yeah. Um, you know, the only time I've been in a fire station uh, as as uh, as an adult you know i think of like a kid you get to go and do the tour but um, a couple of months ago i was in uh, nevada and a friend of mine from high school is a firefighter and, and paramedic uh, for for a department uh let's just say near las vegas and so i had a chance to come over and and visit him and um, tour the station and you know it was really uh, it struck me you know they they are not a department that is um, you know, if you will, practicing lean in any formal way. But, you know, he showed me, um, you know, the standardization, standard practice. Um, I saw elements of um, error proofing, you know, because they had some uh, safety equipment installed um, to basically a hose that, uh, in layman's terms, a hose that connected to the exhaust of uh, the engine to avoid uh, fumes that could, could cause harm. Um, to to the uh, to the officers, and he said, "Well, you know, one of the problems could be that in a rush you go to drive off uh, without first disconnecting that um, that hose, and instead of just you know putting up a sign or telling people to be careful or you know blaming someone after the fact that you know it was designed with a, a, a quick disconnect uh, built in, sort of anticipating that." Um, someone would forget or just for the convenience of it being faster that they could drive off and not damage um, any of their equipment. Um, you know, are there any other examples that, you know, come to mind that, you know, the, the general public might relate to in terms of things that you can do in a, a fire station? Absolutely. I mean, if you looking back over my career, uh, when I first started, you'd get dispatched to an emergency call and we had map books. We'd have to pull from under the seat and we'd say, you know, map page 219 and you'd go to that page and you're so drilled down 
that if you don't recognize one of the street names, um, you may not know what the cross street is. And so you're trying to figure out what the page above or below it was to, to kind of trigger your memory of where you were going. And if you compare that to having, uh, you know, a computer screen with GPS <laughs> in front of you uh, that you can, you know, zoom in and zoom out to get a, uh, a view of exactly where the call is and what your fastest route is to get there, there's a, you know, pretty big difference between those two experiences. And so, um, you know, just, just getting to the call, I think, uh, would be one thing. Um, but uh, I'm a firm believer that anytime you can engineer a solution um, is is um, if your plan if your plan is for people to be perfect, um, you're going to be very disappointed, right? Mm-hmm. You're, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, that's good <laughs> advice for any. That's a good expectation for any setting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, so I think it's always you know to err is human, and um, I think one of the reasons that aviation um, aviation got the memo on that. Right. Um, how many reports did they make uh, that uh, 90 page report error uh, conclusion pilot error? <laughs> you know, it's like, OK, uh, does anyone really think these reports we're writing are preventing the next accident from happening? Right. Hmm. You know, um, I, one of the stories I love from aviation is in World War Two uh, when they, you know, some of their aircraft, uh, their fighter airplanes would taxi after a, a battle or something like that, and there was two levers. Um, one would uh, one was for flaps, and one to retract the landing gear. And the two levers were side by side and looked identical. And if you pulled the, the wrong one when you were trying to put the uh, flaps back to neutral, you would drop the landing gear and drop the uh. plane on its belly, and it would damage <laughs> oh. the, mm-hmm. it would damage the propeller. Right. Well, you're out in the middle of the Pacific. That's that's an aircraft that's not. Uh, you know, combat effective anymore, not because it was shot down, but because a pilot had a 50-50 chance of pulling the wrong lever, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, so they, on their own, the pilots, um, mocked up a little uh, wheel and put it on top of the one for the long landing gear, <laughs> yeah. right? And, yeah. a little, and a little triangle for the one for the flaps Yeah. So to make it, you know, more difficult for them to confuse um you know, so so when you when you think about things like this, like there are a lot of engineering solutions to help limit or at least modify the effect of human error. So, um, like Peter Pronovost uh, says when he discussed aviation, it's like, hey, um, aviation understood that pilots were going to be tired, they were going to be going through a divorce, um, they were going to pull the wrong knob. So that stuff still happens, but they catch it. They've designed systems mm-hmm. to catch it before it causes a catastrophic accident. Yeah, or you have more robust systems with redundancy, and yeah. and, and if you don't prevent the error, you mitigate um, the effect of of the error. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned um, you know checklists and uh, uh, Peter Pronovost and Atul Gawande. His book, The Checklist Manifesto, is 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 that something? Even if. Uh, Fire departments are not, quote unquote, practicing lean. Have, 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 have people embraced the idea of checklists or has that already been part of the culture? Or? I, I think, um, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, I mean, if you if you look at, I, I think checklists are being adopted more so or at least more rapidly um, than anything that they're consciously calling lean. And, and part of the reason is, um, you know, what happens to the human animal during periods of stress. Um, we know that tunnel vision is real. 
Um, people lose their peripheral vision. You have auditory exclusion. You have loss of fine motor skills. Um, you, you experience time distortions. Um, and your brain reverts to a more primitive mode. Um, so if you're the incident commander and there's been a partial building collapse and you have a firefighter who's just announced a mayday over the radio, you are not going to be at your best. You are going to be in a highly uh, adrenal state. And sometimes it's a good idea to be able to pull out a checklist and say, you know, what are the most critical five things that I need to do right now? Um, and if you don't have that, um, you know, you're, you're probably not going to get those things done. So, so it's a good idea to have a checklist. And then just on a more routine basis, for example, when we work a cardiac arrest, um, we have a checklist for all of the evidence-based therapies that are supposed to be ongoing during the cardiac arrest. And then as soon as we get a pulse back, we flip the card over and we move into post-resuscitation care. And that lets us know to attach pulse oximetry and get a full set of vital signs and take the patient's temperature and get a 12-lead ECG and, and, and critical interventions that we want to make sure that we complete before we move the patient. So, yeah, definitely we've embraced checklists and mm -hmm. I think there's a growing awareness um, that they have real value in medicine. Yeah, well, that's great. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear the reinforcement that, you know, the work you're doing is an extension of uh, medicine and the, the healthcare system. And, and, and people may lose sight of that sometimes. And they think of, uh, well, you know, uh, the, the ambulance, the physical transportation of the patient is just one aspect of the care being provided, right? Oh, definitely. And it's so much more so in 2017, even than when I became a paramedic in 1995. And that's because patients are living longer with chronic diseases and they are getting discharged earlier from the hospital and they don't want to go back. So by the time they contact 911, they're quite sick. So we, we, um, we see a lot of patients in critical condition yeah. and throwing them on a gurney and taking them to the hospital doesn't cut it anymore. Yeah. Well, I was watching um, the, just yesterday uh, an episode. There's a series based on the Stephen King book, uh, 112263. And, um, you know, set in the year 1963, there, were, there was a, a woman, a character who was um, uh, hurt very badly and uh, an ambulance arrived. And, you know, the character who, you know, this, this fiction, you know, time traveler from the future um was you know they they were loading her into the back of an ambulance which looked very much to me like a hearse and you know they were basically you know throwing her into the back and they were going to go hopping in the front and drive her and you know the the james franco character asked like well hey, you, you're not gonna you're not gonna you know she needs an iv and you're not gonna and they said well but we're they'll do that at the hospital yeah. Our job is to take her to the hospital and yeah. yeah i mean i think we take for granted the design of an ambulance allows people to be back there and uh, be providing all sorts of advanced care, right? It, it, it does. And, but you know, a really good paramedic knows when it's a critical intervention that should take place outside the hospital and when the patient really does need to be taken to definitive care. There's a balancing act there. Sometimes we call that load and go versus stay and play. Uh, sometimes um, sometimes it really depends on the skill and experience and comfort level of the paramedic. Um, but any time that we delay transport to the hospital for a pre-hospital intervention, it's risk benefit. And uh, the more experienced the paramedic, the, the better sense that they have, I think, 
when the patient needs immediate care, mm-hmm. uh, life-sustaining care, right then and there versus um, we, we need to do this on the way to the hospital or, you know, the definitive care is the hospital. Yeah. So let's, uh, the last topic here, and I think there's there's actually a lot to delve into here, um, cardiac care, the interface between EMS and the hospital, the uh, the value stream, if you will, for a patient who, you know, has collapsed and, and had a heart attack. So to mm-hmm. kind of set up the discussion, I think this was the origin of it. Um, I tweeted a story I heard last week about a hospital lab. Um, you know, it was a, you know, kind of a technical person from the lab complaining that there was some, you know, kind of specialized test that they thought the hospital should be offering. Um, offering that test in-house would reduce cycle time. It would reduce the length of stay, which would save the hospital and the healthcare system uh, a lot of money that far outweighs the cost of the test. And the technologist said, but well, the, the lab wouldn't approve offering the test because that would increase their budget. And, um, you know, we, we see siloed thinking that, that Dr. Deming and Toyota and Lean would, uh, you know, discourage. So, you know, I tweeted about that, that instance of siloed thinking and, and you and, and somebody else um, responded. Um, so I think it was sort of like, well, hey, you know, I, I've got another scenario. Um, can, can you sort of talk through through that scenario that we discussed on Twitter? Right. So the, the context of the scenario um, had to do with patients who had suffered a cardiac arrest um, pre-hospital and one that had been successfully resuscitated um, and was being taken to the hospital. And um, the fact that it's well known in emergency medicine that uh, many invasive cardiologists are reluctant to take cardiac arrest patients to the cardiac cath lab, even when they may benefit from intervention in the lab. And the reason is because um, quite unfairly, if, see these patients have a much, much higher mortality than the general population. They've already, they've already been in cardiac arrest, so they're very sick. Um, and so they have a very high mortality. If they take these patients to the cardiac cath lab, which could be life-saving in some circumstances, Um, If that patient goes on to have a bad outcome, for example, if they die, that death um, is then considered a complication of PCI. And so basically, it makes it look like the cardiologist killed this person in the the cardiac cath lab. And um, that that creates a real disincentive for patients to receive this therapy. And so... Um, it's, it's definitely a problem, um, that it, at least in my judgment is something that needs to change. Um, so it creates risk averse behavior on the part of our cardiology community. And so, um, so that was the context. Um, you know, and you would ask me, um, you know, why or what, what type of scenario would a patient having a STEMI heart attack not go to the cardiac cath lab? So sort of a, a delete delineation here. If you have a patient who is conscious and hemodynamically stable, who is showing an ECG sign of acute STEMI, and and for the non-medical people out there, that stands for ST elevation myocardial infarction. It basically means they're having a heart attack and they have a 12-lead ECG that indicates that they have an acutely occluded coronary artery. So one of the arteries that supplies fresh oxygenated blood to the heart muscle uh, is blocked. And, and sometimes this is what is causing 
a cardiac arrest too, by the way. So, mm -hmm. so in other words, we've resuscitated the patient, and now they have this problem still in their heart that needs to be taken care of. Well, um, there's several reasons that a cardiologist may not take a STEMI patient to the cath lab, um, and one of those reasons is the ECG abnormality that we refer to as STEMI is an imperfect surrogate for an occluded artery. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's part of the problem. So we, th this gets kind of complicated, but I think the main part that you were interested in is wow. just the fact that, that they were worried about the mortality ding, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, it's complicated, but you know, I, uh, you know not to oversimplify it too much, but yeah. let, let, let me, let, let's kind of test for my understanding and yeah. you mm -hmm. can correct me if I'm wrong here. So sure. there is, um, uh, and I'm looking at you sent me two articles. There's journal articles that I'll link to from the blog post for this episode. But, you know, there, there's one comment from a doctor, C. Michael Gibson. He tweeted, it says, you have a heart attack, you're in shock and your risk of dying equals 81%. I can lower death to 41% with PCI. Do you want mm -hmm. PCI or should I have a good quote unquote report card? So yeah. what, what I hear is, there are, and what I read in the articles is that there are times when the, the, the cardiologist and everybody involved in the cath lab does everything completely correctly in terms of process and care, but you still get a bad outcome. And, you know, bad outcomes are not always indicative of uh, a process problem or a preventable error. So right. there are different scorecards, and I assume then this is tied to financial compensation that would, I guess, uh, provide, like you say, a disincentive and the cardiologist, I guess, has the final say of, uh, no, I'm not accepting that patient, even if EMS and the emergency department are recommending a PCI and angioplasty. Is, is sure. That, am I saying that uh, right? And, yeah. And, and to back them up in their own literature, um, they have published criteria that specifically mm -hmm. excludes patients that have had prolonged arrest, that did not receive bystander CPR, um, and, and that are not showing ST elevation on the index 12 lead ECG. So they can, they can find a way um, to not take these patients to the cardiac cath lab if they don't want to. So and me meaning they can point to something to say, well, uh, look at this, it's not medically indicated. Well, I don't even know that, you know, not medically indicated. Uh, I think the way they phrased it is um, n either not desirable for cath or something. It's a weird kind of phrase that they put on there. Uh, my interpretation of this is, uh, well, this patient has a poor prognosis, so they, you know, they, they should not necessarily receive a cath. It's kind of a strange uh, catch-22. Okay. Yeah, it seems like a uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. It, it, exactly. You know, maybe they have a bad outcome because they're not going to the cath lab or we're not being as aggressive as we might be. Um, so, but at the same time, uh, it is also a fact that um, I think if you were a surgeon, um, if you were being told that a patient died due to a complication of surgery, um, and, and, and you vehemently disagreed with that fact, it's a, it's fundamentally unsound, and this is a solvable problem, by the way. And this, you know, this happens everywhere. So it, it's, I mean, in in my mind, um, oh, you know, or I, I think they even have an arbitrary age criterion in there. I think it's eighty five. Uh, you know, so 
So like I said, there, there are ways for them to justify not taking patients to the cardiac cath lab, but I, I'm not entirely persuaded um, that those are all patient-centered. I think, I think basically they're basically saying they think the patient has a poor prognosis, therefore they don't want to take the patient to the cardiac cath lab. But I, in, in my humble opinion, the root problem is that they're being punished um, in, their, in their reporting. In their in their reporting of their data, well, and and do you understand? I mean, the one thing, and, and there's this one article here from the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. Um, it, it doesn't say exactly or real clearly what the impact of uh, physician quality measures or quality reporting is. If it's um, uh, if there's a financial link, if there's a re, you know, if there's uh, if this is one of those scenarios where some of their reimbursement. Is held back and uh, and then and then parceled out based on quality reviews. Is it reputational? What what's do you, do you have a good understanding of what the the consequences of the ding would be to a cardiologist? Um, I I don't. Um, I I doubt it's so uh, mercenary that it's just. Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's reputational amongst peers. I think their peers understand that sure. these patients are very sick. Um, so I don't I don't think it's that. Um, I and I don't know about the reimbursement, but I think they would probably care less about the reimbursement. I think it's their public reputation. You know, I don't think that you know in the day of uh, healthcare compare and um, different things, if you need a cardiac cath. And you're worried about it, and you you know do your research, and you want to find a patient. You know what does everyone do? They want to know what surgeon has the lowest rate of complications. Well, I, I mean, but if somebody's had a heart attack, they're just hey, take me to the closest hospital. Would 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 you know they're 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 not going to stop, and or, you know family members not going to say, well, hey, take uh, take Uncle Billy Bob to this hospital that's four minutes further away because they have better outcomes data, right? They might. They might. I mean, do, <laughs> yeah. do the EMS professionals have a sense of hospital quality and in, in, in terms of where they might choose to take a patient? Sure. That that happens sometimes. Um, you know, a, a lot, oftentimes these people want to speak with their spouse or they might say, well, let me ask my daughter. She's a nurse or uh, so. So they have to obtain consent for the procedure. And very frequently, if they don't have a preferred cardiologist, they will call a family member, um, possibly with ties to the medical community, and um, they may have a preference on who their cardiology or who their cardiologist is. And some patients, uh, you know, it's the opposite problem. They want to go to a particular hospital because that's where their doctor practices medicine. And it might be a hospital without a cath lab or something mm -hmm. like that. So it can be a very dangerous decision. Right. Uh, in those circumstances, EMS would just say, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> you need you need a procedure to save your life. That procedure is not available at that hospital. But uh, by and large, for the most part, um, you, you know, I would say that paramedics... Um, transport patients to the closest appropriate facility and that in many cases the on-call physician for that specialty will be the one that sees that patient um, but um, I don't think it's unheard of mm -hmm. when there is huge disparity in treatment for example I've heard many circumstances where EMS systems um, let's say one hospital works with EMS they activate the cardiac cath lab based on the pre-hospital 12 lead ECG so that when they arrive with the patient, the cardiologist and the cath team is waiting. And let's say another closer hospital do, does not do that. Um, 
paramedics are a smart bunch. Yeah. And if they're going to go five minutes further to save 15 minutes of total ischemic time, right. they're, they're going to go to the further hospital away that's prepared to receive the patient. And um, a lot of times that is the nudge that the other hospital needs to improve. Yeah. Okay, because once they once the CEO looks at the numbers and says, I don't understand why our heart attack case is dropping and they start to investigate and find out, you know, EMS isn't bringing patients to your hospital because they're having a problem with those physicians. um, Things tend to change a little bit faster. Right. Right. Um, which, I mean, it seems like a great example of uh, looking at the system and, and, and minimizing total flow time uh, through, through that value stream uh, mm-hmm. based on that decision of where to go. And I mean, I think it's a really fascinating issue. I mean, you know, looking at the one journal article, you know, it talks about states that have some of this public reporting um, have lower percentages of patients getting that PCI treatment. And mm-hmm. They're at least making the case that it seems like a pretty strong cause and effect relationship. And, and in particular, a state that, you know, they said used to be have very typical PCI rates. And then once the public reporting started, the PCI rates uh, went down significantly, which implies uh, cardiologists were, were saying no to uh, these these riskier patients. So, um you know, I think tying things back to, to Deming, you know, Dr. Deming, you know, always, you know, strongly uh, railed against the idea of, um, you know, targets and incentive payments and, and things like that. Um, more more uh, more recently, Dan Pink in his book Drive, you know, has talked about the idea that that incentives work, but they have side effects. And, and this seems like one of those cases where. Somebody uh, at a high level in the system, well-intended, says, well, if we publish quality data, quality will improve. And this seems like, um, uh, I hate to say, a case where um, some of that maybe has backfired. And I, I fight the temptation to you know, point the finger and say, well, what, what is wrong with, um, pardon the pun, you know, heartless cardiologists? But uh, they're, they're, I'm torn because they're part of a system, but I'm torn because they are also highly trained, highly independent professionals with a, a strong sense of responsibility to their communities. So um, I'm kind of riding the fence on this one, I guess, or I've, I've had a swing of emotions and reactions to this as I've read about it and thought about it over time. Well, it's, it, it is, it's a complex issue. It's a very complex issue. You would like to believe that anyone would have the moral fortitude to perform any procedure that's indicated um, to save a patient's life without worrying about um, how it's going to look on paper or something like that. But, you know, the more you think about it, you realize that the world's not black and white and there's a lot of gray in there. And um, it's not just invasive cardiology, it's cardiothoracic surgery, it's any type of surgery. You know, you hear all the time patients that have a complex case, or it's a redo. This patient's already had a three-vessel bypass, and now they need a second procedure. A lot of surgeons don't want to be fixing someone else's case. They want a fresh patient that's never had the procedure before because you need to harvest vessels for the bypass, and that patient's, the prime ones have already been used up and things like that. And so it's harder for you to find a surgeon to take your case in the world, in in the era of public reporting, 
So it does have unintended consequences. And I, I honestly think that by and large, people are the same, um, meaning that there's not anything uniquely wrong with surgeons. Mm -hmm. I think the reality is if you or I were in their same circumstances, we would have the same apprehensions. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think the reality is um, we need to get it right. If we're going to do public yeah. reporting, we have got to get it right. Well, I think that's uh, a, a, a great lesson, and, and you're right. It's a complex situation. I, I will give everybody the benefit of the doubt that they want to do the right things the right way for the right reasons. Um, but I would encourage people, come to the blog post for the episode, and um, um, you know, there's links to those articles. Maybe we can continue some of that discussion in the comments on, on the post. Um, Tom, you know, you, you have your own um, online presence and writing and, and, and podcast and, and things that you do. Um, where can people find you online and, and social media if you want to kind of mention websites, addresses, things like that? Mm -hmm. um, well, I have, I have several different websites. So um, you can find me on Twitter at tboothalet. That's T-B-O-U-T-H-I-L-L-E-T on Twitter. Um, also at ems12lead.com, at ecgmedicaltraining.com, and at aclsmedicaltraining.com. Um, or you can uh, email me at tboothlay at gmail.com. Uh, you could even call me at 843-247-3453. Uh, and, and we'll have links. I'll, I'll put links to um, all of it, except for your email address. I'll, I'll save you the spam. Uh, people suck up email addresses from the internet, but... Um, I'll, I'll post those websites. And um, you, you also have a podcast. Is that correct? Well, I do. Um, the, the EMS 12 lead podcast is somewhat defunct. I just started a new podcast called the Cardiac Care Show. There's only been one episode so far. Um, so it's one of the things that I'm trying to find time for. Um, basically, um, lately, what I've, I'm on the verge of having the first ever uh, South Carolina Resuscitation Academy, and I've never put on a medical conference before, mm -hmm. so um, it's taken a lot of time and energy right now. But as soon as um, as soon as things calm down after that, I'm going to probably get more back into uh, the cardiac care show. Okay, well, you know, people listening here, uh, you know, self-selecting audience of people who listen to the podcasts, uh, if they're also interested in. Um, you know, the, the work you do, um, I would encourage people to check that out. So, sure. um, Tom, really, really interesting discussion. Thank you for taking a um, good chunk of time out of your day to um, share some of your thoughts, experiences, some thought-provoking scenarios um, for the listeners. So I really appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.